If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to 1 John 5, 13 through 21. Uh, this is our last message in our series on 1 John. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to work through this book uh, together with you, and so I hope it's been helpful to you that God's used it in your own life as well. I want you to imagine a scenario with me to start out this morning. I want you to imagine for a moment that you, in an instant, go from having all sorts of wealth and material things to having only what you can pack inside one suitcase. That, that you go from having a beautiful and big home to living in a one-room bedroom in the corner of a cement drab building. That, that you go from having lots of family and friends to knowing no one at all and living in a foreign country. That, that in an instant, you go from having a successful and meaningful job to, to barely being able to find work, scraping to en- make ends meet. That, that in an instant, you go from being someone who lots of other people look up to and respect to being someone who almost everyone looks down on and disrespects. In other words, that in an instant, you go from having almost everything that people want in this life to having almost nothing that people want in this life. This is the story of Sima Nairi, as told through the lens of her adult son, Daniel Nairi, in his book, Everything Sad is Untrue. It's an incredible book uh, with a great title, Everything Sad is Untrue. And he tells the story through his lens, but he ultimately in some ways tells the story of his mom, that Sima grew up in Iran in a wealthy family, and she married into a wealthy family as well, that, that she was a doctor with a successful medical practice, had a beautiful home, had, had lots of connections, had good family and friends, And then one day she converted from Islam to Christianity. And and as a result, her family's lives and her life was threatened. And she had to flee the country in an instant along with her two young children. Leaving everything behind. All her wealth, all her connections, everything she knew. Fleeing first to the UAE where she was at for about a year. And then to Italy where she lived in a refugee hotel along with her two young children until finally being granted asylum in the United States with her two young children a year later. And Daniel tells this story through his lens as a refugee living in Italy and then as a refugee growing up in Oklahoma. And he refers to his mom throughout the story as the hero of the story because he says she is unstoppable. No matter what gets thrown at her, she keeps going. She's unstoppable. And in one instance, he talks about the difference he saw between his mom and other people when they were at this refugee hotel that he refers to as Hotel Barba. He said, here's the thing. You'll both have the same year at Hotel Barba, but one of you will be looking around with joy and anticipation, wondering what you can do to prepare your kids for the new world. And the other will be slumped in the courtyard surrendered to the idea that it's all one long river of blood. 
but what you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. That's how she did it. That's how she was so unstoppable. Do do you catch what he's saying there? And, And this travels through his whole story about his mom. That people can face the exact same circumstances in some sense in this life. The exact same in some ways difficulties and problems. And in the midst of those, one can walk through having reason for joy where another loses all reason for joy. The reality is that as we go through life, there are lots of reasons for us not to have joy. There are lots of reasons that we could come up with why we shouldn't have joy based on what we're facing and walking through at times. But I want to make the case, and hopefully you've seen that this is the case through this whole series, that for the Christian, there is always a good reason for joy. That for the follower of Christ, there is always a good reason for joy. That's the big idea this morning. And honestly, as I've walked through 1 John, that's been the thing that's stuck out to me in some ways the most. That for the follower of Christ, no matter what else we may be facing, there is always a good reason for joy. And I think that this has to be true because otherwise God's command to us through Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, isn't possible. If there's not always a good reason for joy, then it's not possible to rejoice always. And I want to say that that doesn't mean that joy always comes easy. You likely know, like, you have to fight for joy. Many times. That, that doesn't mean that, that joy will always be the most dominant thing in our lives. That, that it won't be intermixed with grief, sadness, anger, and other emotions as we walk throughout this life. But for the follower of Christ, there is reason for joy outside of our circumstances. Outside of whatever we're facing right in front of us. And I said this in the first message in this series. I think that's what we all long for in some sense. A joy that isn't dependent and rooted in our circumstances ultimately. But a joy that can actually carry us and sustain us through whatever circumstances we do face in this life. And so as we look at the last verses in John's letter this morning... We're going to see five things that John says we can know. Actually, it's it's more than that, but we're just going to look at five of them to highlight them. And and I think really we can say these are five things we can know that give us a good reason to have joy no matter what in our lives or no matter what's happening in our lives. So let's pray and then read together 1 John 5, 13 through 21 and then look at those five things. God, as we sung this morning, you are good. You are good. No no matter what takes place in our life, we have this anchor. You are good. And the reason that we ultimately know that is because of your son, Jesus, and what he's done for us. But God, we, we walk through a life where there are all sorts of things happening that are not good in some sense. And so we need your voice. We need to hear from you. We need your word to be able to guide us and shape us. And for that to happen, we so desperately need your Holy Spirit to speak and work 
And so I pray that you would work, that you would speak, that you would move in our lives as we look at 1 John one more time this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 5, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there's a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Just want to walk through these verses this morning and have us think about what are, what are five things we find in here that we can know that then could give us reason for joy as followers of Christ? And here, here's the first one, and we've already hit on this in this series, but I think there's a reason that John keeps bringing it up again and again and again. That to know you have eternal life is a reason for joy. John reminds us he is writing this letter so that the person who's trusted in Christ may know deep down for certain, for sure, positively, that they have eternal life. That matters so much for us if we're going to have joy. Because if we know that our story ends in unending, perfect, overwhelming joy, then we can have joy in this life even as we walk through all sorts of things that may cause us sadness and grief and difficulty. But if we are not certain about the end of our story and we think that ultimately it may end in sadness or just in some black, empty void, then all joy is limited to whatever circumstances you're facing right now because the end ultimately isn't good in that case. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century preacher who's probably most famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, Probably not a sermon title you're going to hear very much of today. And sadly, people, because of that, most often associate him just with being the sort of fire and brimstone preacher. But ultimately, he was a preacher who was concerned deeply with Christian joy Joy in the God who is the source of all joy. In fact, his very first sermon, given when he was 18 years old, think about that. You're 18 years old. You've got to preach a sermon. What what are you going to preach on? His very first sermon is titled Christian Happiness. And in it, he makes the case that a Christian can be happy in whatever circumstances he or she may find herself in in this life. That a Christian can and should be happy in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. 
And he gives three reasons why that's true, he would say. The first is this. God will turn even the bad things around for your good in the end. The second, your good things can't ever be taken away from you. And the third, the best things are yet to come. Notice all three of those reasons are rooted in that we have eternal life. Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this kid's book where she comments on uh, what uh, Jonathan Edwards says in the sermon. And I love what she says about this. She says, it doesn't mean that everything in our story is happy today, but that God is making the story end happily for the world and for his children. If the story doesn't have a happy ending, then all joy, all happiness in this life is only temporary. Only temporary. If the story does have a happy ending, then all sadness, all grief, all pain in this life is only temporary. That's why John wants so desperately for us to know that we have eternal life in Christ. You might ask, well, okay, how do I know that? How am I certain of that? How can I be sure of that? That's what John's been writing about over and over again in his book. Do do you believe that Jesus is the son of God and he's the only one who can save you? Do, Do you seek to love and obey God, albeit imperfectly? Do you seek to love other Christians, albeit very imperfectly? Well, if your answer to those questions is yes, then you've got eternal life and you've got a reason for joy no matter what else comes your way in this life. And as a result, John goes on to say, then you can pray to God with confidence. That's the second thing. As we look at verses 14 through 15 then, to know that you can pray with confidence is a reason for joy. And that we can pray with confidence, first of all, that God hears us. Now, I I say that, and and likely it probably has the same same effect on you that it has on me when I hear something like that. Say, yeah. Okay, cool. But, but when we stop and think about that, like anytime we slow down enough to actually think about that truth, it should stun us. I mean, I, I think this is where analogies can be helpful to remind us just how stunning it is that God hears us. Imagine that this week you sent an email to one of your heroes, whoever that is. I'm going to send an email to John Piper. I know, you probably don't guess that he's one of my heroes based on the fact that I quote him almost every other week up here. But I'm going to send an email to John Piper. If I open up my email box the next morning and I've got an email that says, from John Piper in response. First of all, I'm probably going to doubt it because I tend to be cynical. And I'm going to think, ah, it was just his secretary and he signed it. But if I can prove, if I can prove John Piper wrote this email to me, he heard me, he responded to me. I'm going to tell everyone else that week. It's going to be a great cause for joy. Why? Because John Piper heard me and he responded to me. And then I think, who is John Piper in comparison to the creator? Like, who is John Piper in comparison to the infinite, majestic, perfect, glorious God we read about in the Bible? He's an ant compared to a lion. I mean, if I get excited about the fact that John Piper might hear me and respond to me, if that's a cause for joy, how much more should it be a cause for joy that when I pray, God hears me 
and responds to me. And and I want you to get this. This isn't just like he hears as if he's got all sorts of other things going on and and your voice is kind of in the corner of his ear, like, yeah, yeah, I hear you, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. This is like his attention is fully focused on you. Like you're his favorite child coming before him and he's listening to every single word. Now, notice though, John adds a clarification here. He calls us to pray according to God's will. In other words, that to approach God with more confidence and boldness is to pray according to his will. Now, how, how do we do that? Well, we get to know God in the scriptures. As we read about him, we get to know his heart, his passions, his desires, what brings him joy. And then we pray more and more in line with that. And as we do, we have more and more confidence, not only that he hears us, but that he will respond and answer our prayers. So I think about that. If I ask my wife on a Friday night, hey Bree, do you want to go to Target tonight? I know her response before I even ask that question. I know her response before I even ask that question. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You want to stop at Starbucks in the morning? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because I, I know my wife. On the other hand, if I, if I ask my wife on a Friday night, hey, Bree, do you want to go to the demolition derby at the Buck tonight? I know her response before I even ask. What? Like, why do we do that? We've never done that before. Why would we ever do that? Why? Because I, I, I know my wife. Like, I, I've gotten to know her. I know what she loves, what she enjoys. And if you're a spouse, it's the same for you. If you've got a close friend, the same thing. You probably know there are certain things that you can ask, and you know the response even before you ask because of how you know them. We're called to know God, know his will, know his passions, know his desires, and then pray according to those. That's why we shouldn't ever try to separate prayer out from knowing the Bible. We, we connect those two together more and more and more and then have more and more confidence as we approach God in prayer. And, and then here, here's the second thing we might see here, that we pray with confidence that God will only do what is best for us. This is what I, I would say it seems like John is getting at in verse 15, where he talks about if we pray, God hears our requests and, and we have our answers in some ways already. It is not this blank check that somehow I can manipulate God or or cause him to do whatever I want him to do. I would say more so it's in line with a promise that God's always only going to do what's best for us. Here's how Daniel Akin puts it. This is a great line about prayer. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. I mean, do do we believe that God will always only ever do what is for his glory and for our good? Because if we do, We've got a powerful reason for joy, even if what we're facing right now doesn't seem or feel good. And and prayer is actually one of the ways that we stir up that confidence. Here's a quote from Tim Keller on, on prayer. He says, prayer is the way to experience a powerful confidence 
that God is handling our lives well. And then listen to what he says next. It's going to be an echo of something we already said. That our bad things will turn out for our good. That our good things cannot be taken from us. And that the best things are yet to come. Prayer is what gives us the confidence that God is handling our lives well. It's this humility and joy. It's a humility to say, God is God and I'm not. Like, I I don't always know what's best for me. You think about that. Prayer is essentially looking yourself in the mirror in some ways and saying, I don't know what's best for me all the time, but God, you do. And God, I'm going to pray in line with what I know of your will, but then then I'm going to trust that you're going to do what's best for me, no matter what in these circumstances and what I'm facing. Pastor Brandon said something at the the end of last week's sermon or or the conclusion of last week's service, where he said, I wonder how much joy we leave on the table because we don't know and believe God's promises. And I think of the same thing in my own life in relation to prayer. I wonder how much joy I leave on the table because I don't come before God, making my requests known to him, worshiping him, and then renewing the confidence that he is really a heavenly father who cares for me and will only do what's best for me. How much joy do I leave on the table because I I don't do that? That's why I'd say when Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always, he immediately follows up with pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. To know that you have eternal life is a reason for great joy. To know that, that you can approach God with confidence is a reason for great joy. And then as we move on to verses 16 through 17, we might say this. To know that other Christians have your back is a reason for joy. These verses, if you look back at verses 16 and 17, bring up two big questions. First, what does John mean by the sin not leading to death? And second, what does John mean by sin that leads to death? Now, I think, here's what I'm going to say. We should neither avoid these questions, nor should we spend so much time on them that we miss the main thrust of what John is saying here. So so with that in mind, I'm going to attempt an answer to these questions just shortly, but then focus on what I would say is the main thrust of what John is saying in these verses. What, What is the sin that doesn't lead to death? I would say it's any sin we commit that because of God's grace, we can confess, repent of, and find forgiveness. You might say, well, isn't that every sin? Right? Doesn't, didn't John say in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? To which we should say, yes. Like there, there is no particular one unforgivable sin that you can commit if your response to sin is confess it, repent of it, and seek forgiveness in Christ. So then what does John mean by the sin leading to death? Here's what I believe he means. That, that there are certain, I shouldn't even say certain people, that there, there's a way that someone can so consistently reject any offer of grace and forgiveness in Christ, so consistently reject any call to repentance, that they become hardened to any offer of God's grace over time. 
that, that in some ways they almost put themselves beyond the reach of God's grace because they've rejected his grace so often. They've rejected a call to repent so often that, that they no longer have a option for their sins being pardoned by virtue of rejecting Jesus and the offer he's made to them. Now, we, we could wade farther down that trail, but I want us to have ins- instead step back and grasp what I think is John's main thrust here. First, that we should have each other's back. Sin is deadly and deceitful, and we can get caught in sin and entrapped to it without us even realizing it. We, we can believe that something sinful will make us happy, and so go down that road without even realizing it will make us miserable. That's what sin does. It convinces us to disregard God and his commands, to pursue happiness outside of his will. And we can justify that pursuit in a thousand different ways. Like, I can justify gossip and slander of other people in a thousand different ways. You probably can too. Take any other sin. You, You can justify it in a thousand different ways. And yet gossip and slander is a sin against God and against his people. And the problem is that if I'm isolated from God's people, isolated from the church, thinking I just need me and Jesus to walk through this life, if no one has my back, then I become far easier prey for Satan and for entrapment in sin. The more isolated we are as Christians, the more vulnerable we are to Satan's lies and to sin hardening us over time. You know this just from any time you've watched an animal documentary, right? Go home and watch an animal documentary on Netflix today. Who's the first wildebeest that gets picked off by the lion? The one that's separated from the pack. Right? Like you, you can even probably picture this in your mind. There's this lonely wildebeest who kind of walks away from the pack, goes prancing down to the water, wants to get a drink of the water all by himself. And meanwhile, in the background, that like intense music starts to play. You're looking at the screen, and you're maybe like on the edge of your seat, yet like, go back to the pack. There's a lion sitting over there. And the wildebeest has no idea. And then all of a sudden the lion pounces and takes him down. The wildebeest who walks alone is easy prey for the lion. The Christian who walks alone is easy prey for Satan and for the lies of sin. We need to have each other's back. Now I would guess most of us probably agree with that. We like the idea of someone else having our back. Someone else stepping in and pulling us away from danger. Right? We, don't, we don't want to be the lonely one who gets attacked. But here's where I think there's something that grates against us. If we want to have each other's back, we should be in each other's business. I, I don't know how you take that line, that we should be in each other's business, but that tends to just grate against me. Like, no, it's my business. I don't want you to know my junk. I don't want you walking up into my life thinking that you can, like, confront me on stuff, Right? This is, this is my, I'll do what I want in some sense. That, that's the individuality our culture prizes, pushing against the community that God prizes and wants for us. 
notice to be able to pray for someone when they fall into sin means living in close enough proximity to them that you're able to pray for them before they even realize they need prayer. Like the context of this verse is not someone coming up to you and saying, hey, I'm struggling with sin, can you pray with me? It's someone falling into sin and you starting to pray for them before they even realize that they've fallen into sin. That doesn't happen unless we have people up in our business. Now, like that, that doesn't happen. It, if all I have in the church is people who I say hi to once a week and ask, how is your week going? People are not going to be able to have my back when I most need them to. We need people who like know our weaknesses, know our temptations, know our struggles, know our junk so that they can have our back when we most need them to. I, I don't think that means that has to be everyone in the church. Most people in the church are probably going to be people that you say hi to once on a Sunday morning, maybe talk to for a little bit, ask how, there was, how was their week. But there should be at least a couple people who know you, really know you. Like, know your junk. Know what's happening in your lives. Know about your marriage and the struggles in your marriage if they are there. Know your temptations. Know it so that they can have your back when you most need them to. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says this, and I think there's a connection to the first John passage here. The author says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. The author's not talking to non-Christians there. He's talking to people who say they're Christians. He's saying, take care, lest there be in you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Like, do you have people in your life who you're confident they would pray for you when you most need them to and you least want them to? Do you have people in your life who you are confident will not let you walk away from Christ or the church without a fight? Do you have people in your life who can confront you, say something you don't like to hear, and you're willing to listen before you get defensive? And are you that type of person for someone else? Because we desperately need those people. We desperately need those people. And if we don't have those people, I just want to urge you, find those people. Like find two or three people who who you can get together with regularly and talk about what's happening in your life. And ask them to hold you accountable or confess your sin to them. Like join a care group. Or if you're in a care group, recognize those people in your group are people you're called to have their back and be in their business together with. Joy is not an individual project just me and Jesus. Joy is a corporate project where we walk together more and more into the fullness of joy that God wants for us. That's why a life of joy is life with God and with his people, which is what John has been getting at over and over again in 1 John. We belong to God and to his people, which leads to the fourth reason we can have joy. To know that you belong to God is a reason for joy. The, the emphasis in verses 18 and 19 is that those who have trusted in Christ belong to God. That, that's the reason we won't keep on sinning without fighting against it and confessing it. 
And it's the reason why the evil one cannot touch us, John says, even though the rest of the world lies within his grasp. John tells us, Jesus will not let you go. That's an incredible reason for joy. Jesus protects you, cares for you, watches over you. He will not let you go if your faith is in him. Yes, like suffering still assaults us in this life. Temptation still attacks us and we fall to sin. Doubts still come crashing in. But through it all, Jesus won't let you go. You are his and he's got a hold on you. I mean, I think about why can a little kid who's crossing a busy street with all sorts of cars that are threatening to smash him cross the street with laughter and joy? Because there's an adult who is holding on to his hand as he crosses the street, making sure that nothing ultimately harms him. That's an image of what Jesus is doing for us. He's got our hand. He's got us in his grasp. He holds on to us. Whatever we walk through and face in this life, that is a powerful reason for joy. And I think an implication of this then too is that God will turn all that is bad to serve your benefit if your faith is in Christ. As Jonathan Edwards said earlier, that even our bad things will turn out for good in God's hands. Like Satan still seeks to tempt us. Suffering still afflicts us. Death is still a major blow. But in the hands of God, everything that in this life feels bad, and in fact is in some sense bad, he uses to serve our benefit. That's part of what it means to say the evil one can't grasp onto us and touch us, even though the whole world is in his hands. Because we are in God's hands, no matter what. It's part of what it means when Paul in Romans 8.37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even what is bad on the surface, God ultimately turns around for our good to serve our benefit. When my wife and I moved into our current house, this is probably seven years ago now, we moved in uh, knowing full well that the roof that was on our house uh, wasn't great, that, that it was going to need to be replaced at some point, that, that this was going to be a major expense for us moving into this new home. And, and then about five or six years ago, maybe you remember this, there was a major hailstorm in Lancaster, uh, especially major around the place that we live damaging lots of roofs, including our own. And and so we we might think in that scenario, oh great, like hail has damaged our roof now, now we're going to have to get this roof even earlier as a result of what's caused harm on our roof. But but it turns out that insurance covers hail damage. And so we, along with many other people, got a free roof. I mean, in some sense, yes, we paid for it because we paid for insurance. But a free roof at their case because of the hail damage. See what happened there? The thing that was meant in some way to harm and destroy our roof, hail, aimed at harming our roof, ultimately ended up serving our benefit to where we got a new roof free of charge as a result. The thing that in the immediate seemed harmful ended up serving our benefit. 
Now, here's where I want to be so careful, because I think that this can seem trite, depending on what you're walking through in your life. But I so desperately want to say, this is not trite. Like, this is a source of deep hope and deep joy when we walk through suffering and pain, that God uses everything, even the bad things, to serve our benefit in the end. That everything that Satan throws at us as he tries to pull us away from God's grasp, God ultimately turns around and uses it to serve our good. That's what enables us to look at the afflictions we face in this world and say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look, in, in the midst of your deepest trials, joy can be found as you walk through them by faith and keep going because it's a sign that Jesus really is holding on to you and won't let you go. And in the midst of your deepest trials, joy can be found because you can know and believe God will ultimately use everything, including this, to serve my benefit. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know fully what that's going to look like, but, but I'm going to believe and trust his word and his promises and know that's true and cling to that and know that that's a reason for great joy. And, and as good as I think all that is, the pinnacle reason we can have joy is this. We know God through Jesus. To know that you know God is a reason for joy. To know that you know God is a reason for joy. John starts, or John ends in many ways where he started, with knowing God through Jesus Christ in verses 20 and 21. Knowing God through Jesus Christ. And not just knowing about God, not just knowing facts about him, not just being able to have the right words to say about him, but, but like, knowing him in the sense of daily walking in relationship with him, having fellowship with him, as John said in his first chapter. To, to know God is to know your creator. To know God is to know the one who is only always good. To know God is to, to know the one who's perfect in love. To, to know God is to know the one who's never changing, always faithful, to, to know God is to know the very source of all joy. There is nothing better for us in this life or in all eternity than to know God. And John's saying, that's who we know through Jesus Christ. And to know him is then to walk in glad dependence on him each day, leaning into him in prayer, learning from him in his word. I, I learned something fascinating this past week about uh, sunflowers. You maybe already know this, but I learned this for the first time. We were at a family member's house uh, who just has acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of sunflowers. A and he took us out on this wagon ride, hay ride, through the sunflowers. And he told us this, that the sunflowers, as they grow up, are always facing up towards the sun. And it was fascinating. As we went on one side of this fence row with trees, the sun was setting, and all the sunflowers on that side of the fence row were facing the sun as it was setting. 
And then we got to the other side. We turned around. We are coming back on the other side of these trees where the trees were already blocking the sunset. And the sunflowers had already turned to face where the sun was going to rise the next day. That sunflowers instinctively know we need to be fixed on the sun as much as possible. That the sun is the source of everything good for us. And so we're going to be looking toward the sun every single moment that we're growing. That's a picture of how we should be with God. That to know deep down he's the source of everything good in our lives. To know deep down he's the source of all joy. To, to know that if we turn away from him, our joy will shrivel up at some point. But to keep walking with eyes fixed on him, pursuing him, knowing him, is to find fullness of joy. That's why I think John then closes his chapter, or closes his letter, in this way. Little children, keep away from idols. Or, or as the New Living Translation puts it, I think it puts it better. Dear children, keep away from any, anything that might take God's place in your hearts. That if we know God is the source of all our joy, then we naturally try to keep away from anything else that might take his place. So in every good thing we enjoy in this life, we remember God is the source of it and he's infinitely better. As I chew down on a Chipotle burrito or drink a cup of square one coffee or ride on a roller coaster with my son laughing next to me, I remember, God, you're the source of this and if this is good, how much better are you? And as we walk through all sorts of trials, going through even the valley of the shadow of death, we remember God is with me. He is watching over me. He is my strength and my joy. And, and though I walk in darkness right now, he will shine the light of his face upon me again. The joy of the Christian is not rooted in life going perfectly here and now. It's rooted in the fact that we know God, that we're confident of his love, that we know he's with us and for us, and that to have him is to have fullness of joy. Here's how Daniel Nyeri puts it in relation to his mom and her life. This is a long quote, and I'm not going to have it up on the screen, but I just want you to listen to it because I think it's a powerful, powerful quote. He says, when I tell the story in Oklahoma, he's referring to the story of his mom converting and becoming a Christian. He says, when I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me and they say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up till that point, I've told them about the house with the birds in the walls, all the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian. All the money she gave up so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her. And she says, because it's true. It's true. And it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs in Jaffa and even maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true and that there is a God 
and he wants you to believe in him, and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be more, worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. That or Sima is insane. She's poor now. People spit on her in buses. She's a refugee in places people hate refugees. And she'll tell you it's worth it. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Like, that's the ultimate reason we have joy. We know God through Jesus, and Jesus is better. Come what may in this life, he's holding on to us so we can have joy, and we can spread that joy as we tell others about Jesus. This is part of what we're declaring and reminding ourselves of as we take communion together, that Jesus purchased all our joy both now and forever when he died on the cross. I want to read a couple verses as we get ready to take communion and just think about the fact that Jesus' blood was shed to purchase all the reasons we just said that we can have joy. His blood was shed so that we can have eternal life. John 6, 54 says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. His blood was shed so we can confidently approach God in prayer. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, his blood was shed so we could belong to the church, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. His blood was shed so we might overcome and conquer Satan and all he throws at us. And they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. His blood was shed so that we can have peace with God and know him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus' blood was shed so that you and I can always have a reason for joy, both now and forever. And so when we take communion, we get to say, thank you, Jesus. You're incredible. Thank you for shedding your blood. And you are so much better than anything or anyone else. And we can't wait to be home with you one day. So Jesus tells us, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he tells us of the cup. Drink of it. For this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we praise you. We declare you are better than anything else. We ask you to fill us with the joy that comes from knowing you, that we might be spreaders of that joy, that people might see us look at Christians and say they are the happiest people on the planet earth and wonder why. Pray this in Jesus' name.